You're listening to a podcast from Meaning of Life TV. Hi, this is Robert Wright. One thing I like about the conversations I have here on The Wright Show is that they help me think and write. They've informed the books and many of the articles I've written over the past 15 years. Now, lately, most of my writing has been for my newsletter, the Non-Zero Newsletter. It covers the kinds of topics you see on the show. Politics, foreign policy, psychology, philosophy, spirituality, how to avoid the apocalypse, things like that. So if you enjoy The Right Show, chances are pretty good that you'll enjoy the newsletter. It's free, and all you have to do to get it is go to nonzero.org and sign up. So I suggest that you hit pause, go sign up, and then hit play. Thanks. Hi, Bonte. Hi, Bob. How are you? I'm okay, thank you. And you? I cannot complain. Let me introduce this. I'm Robert Wright. This is The Wright Show, available on both streaming video and via audio podcast. You are Bhikkhu Bodhi, very well-known scholar of Buddhism, very uh, prolific and esteemed translator of Buddhist texts. You have uh, translated... Uh, large chunks of what is called the Pali Canon, which is to say the, the, uh, the version of ancient Buddhist texts, uh, that is, was originally in the language of Pali, uh, which certainly Theravada Buddhists consider to be the oldest, uh, the oldest canon. And, and I don't know, is, is that a matter that's in dispute, by the way, that it is, that the Pali layer is the oldest? Well, layer? there are, parallels to the Pali suttas that have been preserved in other languages in Gandhari, Buddhist hybrid Sanskrit Mm -hmm. um, and then of course that have been translated into Chinese, some in Tibetan Mm -hmm. and it's a moot question whether like there are different versions of the same sutta or there might be different versions of the same sutta Hmm. It's a moot question whether the Pali version is necessarily older than, say, the Gandhari version or the Buddha's hybrid sense, right. the Buddha's Sanskrit version. Um, but let's say that the texts themselves are probably the most ancient stratum of Buddhist literature, even though the version in Gandhari or Buddha's hybrid Sanskrit might okay. show more archaic features than the corresponding Pali version. Okay, and people uh, may have noticed that you use the word sutta. That's an example of a pronunci- of, a, of a word that would be rendered a little differently, but uh, in Pali from Sanskrit, but not very. So, in uh, that most people will have heard the word sutra, which is the Sanskrit uh, version. Sutta, I guess, often uh, you get in Pali, as with sutta, you get a, a simple uh, consonant that is a compound consonant in uh, in. Sanskrit, like Nibbana in, in Pali is n- Nirvana yeah. in, in Yeah, what, what Pali tends to do, because it's based more on spoken languages, on vernaculars, and so it tends to ah. flatten out and, and eliminate consonant conjuncts, conjunctions of consonants. So where you have, in Sanskrit, Nirvana, so an R followed by a V, in Pali, it will turn into a double B, Nibbana. Mm-hmm. In Sanskrit, you get karma. That R-M combination is rather a bit difficult to pronounce. So in Pali, it becomes kamma. Dharma okay. becomes dhamma. And there, is it the belief among Theravadan Buddhists that the Buddha himself spoke Pali? 
that is a disputed question. I think the, let's say the predominant position amongst philologists is that the Buddha did not himself speak Pali, but he would have used probably a variety of um, dialects that were used in the states in Northeast India. Mm-hmm. Probably he used the language of Magadha in the state of, of Magadha, and he used Kosalan language in the state of Kosala. But Pali is it's regarded by the scholars, by philologists, as a kind of hybrid of various northeastern dialects from that okay. ancient period. So somebody, if we were to recover a text in Magadan or in Kosalan, the languages that are no longer preserved, and if you know Pali, you would be able to read them pretty much with 90, 95% hmm. fluency. Okay. So let me let me finish introducing you. Um, uh, I should say, as far as your translations go, there are very big uh, chunks of the Pali Canon that that, that uh, you've translated and can be found in in the form of very big volumes. A couple of more slender uh, volumes that are that are selective renderings of your translations are first this one in the Buddha's words, an anthology of discourses from the Pali Canon. And then this one, which is uh, even more slender and is uh, thematically more specific, is the Buddha's teachings on social and uh, communal harmony, Mm -hmm. an anthology of discourses. Um, And uh, and you are you are at you'll have to pronounce the name of the monastery you're at uh, for me. Yeah, it's called Zhuangyan Monastery. Uh Uh-huh. It's a and Chinese, you're, and you're uh, uh, you're whatever the the official term is for head monk. Actually, I'm not. I'm not the abbot of the monastery. Oh, I see. Um, I'm the president. Of, you see that there's an association, which is the umbrella organization under which the monastery is administered, and I'm the president of that association. Called a bit pretentiously, it's called the Buddhist Association of the United States. <laughs> yeah. But it doesn't, it in no way has authority over all of the Buddhists in the United States. <laughs> its domain of authority extends to this monastery and the branch temple in the Bronx. Although but, I will say, yeah, if I were to judge by the size of the statue of the Buddha at your monastery, yeah. I would think yeah. it's the most important monastery in the Western Hemisphere. I've been there. Yeah. That's a that's a big Buddha. Yeah, it's said to be the largest Buddha image in the Western Hemisphere. How, how tall is it? Actually, I don't remember the the height. Many many feet. Yeah. Many many feet tall is what I can confidently say. So we're going to talk about um, any any other monastery gets it into their head to construct a larger a larger Buddha image. We have to send somebody down to undermine that project. So yeah, or, el- or else build a bigger booty yourself, one way or the other. <laughs> but, but, but yeah, I agree. Covert action would be the way to avoid an arms race, yeah. <laughs> which which is uh, which brings us very organically to what we're going to talk about, which is Buddhism and militarism. Hmm. Uh, the uh, you know what what does Buddhism have to say about war? Um, is there such a thing as a uh, a just war under under Buddhist 
doctrine or under any plausible interpretation of Buddhist doctrine. Of course, Buddhism is pretty famously associated with nonviolence. Mm. Um, uh, at the same time, there people have noted that Buddhists have not always behaved nonviolently. There's mm-hmm. a whole book called Zen at War that's about the role of uh, Buddhists in, in, in supporting the Japanese war effort in World War II. Yeah. Um, more, e- more recently, I personally have gotten a lot of questions about uh, the role of Buddhists, including Buddhist monks, in the uh, violent uh, persecution yeah. of the Rohingya, yeah. in- Muslims uh, yeah. in Myanmar, um, and so there's there's uh, and I should say one of the motivating one of my own motivating um, forces here in asking you to do this is a, is a kind of frustration I have. Which is that there is a certain amount of uh, political activism on the part of American Buddhists, but I haven't seen much that has to do with American uh, militarism. Uh, so, mm-hmm. so there is there is stuff about climate change. There is uh, some mm-hmm. I've seen some activism related to social justice. I'm not aware of much having to do with, mm-hmm. say, American drone strikes abroad or specific yeah. military interventions yeah. Yeah. or proxy interventions or whatever. So. Mm-hmm. I just want I want to talk about this broadly yeah. with you. Yeah. Um, let, let me uh, before we I, I want you I want to ask you to kind of lay out the ethical foundation for mm-hmm. thinking about the Buddhist approach to, to violence mm-hmm. and militarism. But before you do mm-hmm. that, I, I want to ask you: have, have you? I assume you've been asked about Myanmar. Uh, when I've been asked, it's often in the context of meditation more than Buddhist ethical doctrine, because I'm an advocate of uh, meditation, yeah. including Buddhist yeah. meditation. And people yeah. say, well, look, if meditation uh, makes you such a great person, how can we see this? That's not so hard to answer, because you can point out that, for one thing, there are a lot, a lot of Asian Buddhists who don't even meditate. But yeah. Yeah. If, if, do you get asked this uh, this question? I haven't been asked that question much recently, mm-hmm. though it had come to my attention much more frequently after maybe two waves of persecution persecution by the Buddhists against Muslims in Myanmar, uh, mm-hmm. particularly the Rohingya. Mm-hmm. One was, I think it was 2015, when large numbers of Rohingya were fleeing from Myanmar by boat, often at risk to their own personal mm-hmm. safety, um, traveling by boat to from Myanmar to Malaysia or even maybe Thailand to escape from the conditions in Myanmar. So that was one time when constant waves of questions were being mm-hmm. raised. And the other, of course, was after, I think it was 2017, mm-hmm. when the Burmese or Myanmar military struck the province, which was inhabited by large numbers of Rohingya. Mm-hmm. And so some 700,000 of them or so eight hundred were, were displaced and and tens yeah, of thousands they, killed. I think, yeah, yeah, they fled in such large numbers to Bangladesh, mm-hmm. where they've been living in these um, displaced person camps or refugee camps in a mm-hmm. particular part of Bangladesh. And mm-hmm. So I was asked in that during that period. What What do you say when you're asked? Well, first I would have to say that. From a purely Buddhistic ethical perspective, there could be no justification at all for Buddhists uh, 
unleashing violence and and ethnic antagonism against other people just because they belong to a different ethnic group and follow a different religion. So that can't be justified in any way on Buddhist ethical grounds. And um, what I just have to say is that there's the human mind is capable of a great disparity between its theoretical ethical commitments and the way it acts in its relationships with other people in mm-hmm. which those ethical obligations are just put off into the corner and not adhered to at all. I mean, we saw the same thing. I lived for, as you know, for like 20 years in Sri Lanka. And during a large part of my time in Sri Lanka, 1983, up until, well, the war continued until 2009, though I left Sri Lanka in 2002. But during that period of ongoing ethnic war between the Sri Lankan government, which was primarily representing the Sinhalese ethnic group, mm-hmm. ethnic community, and the Tamil rebels, especially a group called the Tamil Tigers, mm-hmm. um, was going on. And the Sri Lankan army, the, most of the soldiers, not all, but probably the great majority are Buddhists, and yet they would fight in this war against the Tamil Tigers, and often they would, I have to say rather sadly, massacre villages of Tamil people, and they would capture and imprison Tamil civilians out of suspicion that they were aiding the Tigers, or that they had relatives who were Tigers and they wanted to get information about them. Okay. And so there was a kind of this, this, this very striking disparity between, and these are, as I said, most of these soldiers are, at least by way of their origins, they're Buddhist. And even the Buddhist monks, I have to say, this is not only something that was performed by the soldiers, but the Buddhist monks would go to the military camps and they would fire up the soldiers, telling them that it's their duty to preserve Mm. the race and the religion, the Sinhalese Mm. race and the Buddhist religion, by eliminating the enemies of the race and the religion. And that would be not the Tamil people as such, but the Tamil tigers, that militant militant rebel group. Wow. Wow. Okay, so what, um, you know, and of course, uh, Buddhists aren't the only people have, as you suggest, have acted, uh, you know, uh, in mm. ways that don't seem entirely consistent with the professed yeah. Yeah. ethics of their religion. The, um, but, uh, well, let's talk about those, those ethics in the case mm. of, uh, Buddhism. What, what, mm. if you look at the texts themselves, at the canon itself, mm. What, what would you, um, what would you conclude about the Buddhist position on violence, on war, on hatred, and so on? Yeah, certainly the Buddhist texts are without any compromise, without any room for, um, for wavering and, um, Anyway, without any compromise, they're quite insistent on the need to maintain nonviolence, harmlessness in thought, speech, and deed. Mm-hmm. So we have amongst the five precepts, the first of the five precepts is the precept 
not to destroy life, not even to take the life of animals, let alone human beings. And right speech, one aspect of right speech is not to speak words that will lead to the harm of others, particularly not to give commands and orders to kill and to harm others. And in thought, that one of the qualities to be developed is ahingsa, or avihingsa, harmlessness in thought. Mm -hmm. And instead to replace the disposition to harm with loving kindness and compassion. So those are some of the fundamental ethical principles of Buddhism, Mm -hmm. governing body, speech, and thought. And ahimsa is is a term found in other traditions of Indian origin, right, including uh, Hinduism, and, and I guess in a, in particularly extreme form uh, among Jains, right, in, in Jainism. Yeah. I, yeah. Well, go yeah. ahead. I, I think the, the concept of Ahimsa perhaps originated amongst the Jains because Jainism goes back in its origins long before the time of, of the Buddha. But I think the Buddha didn't simply borrow the principle of non-injury or harmlessness from the Jains, but he would have seen this as being quite fundamental to leading the kind of ethical life and spiritual life that is essential for following his own path to the goal of liberation, the goal mm-hmm. of the extinction of suffering. Okay. And, th- and there's some evidence in the early text that uh, I guess in the period before the the Buddha's arrival there had there had been a lot of um, a fair amount of uh, violence and, and disruption. It, it was not an especially stable time. Yeah, well, what was taking place during the Buddha's time and the process probably started some decades or maybe even a century before that there were basically in northeast India in the time of the Buddha there were two kinds of states, two forms of political organization. One was the older tribal republics and the Buddha's own state of origin, the second state, was a republic, not a monarchy. Even though Buddhist tradition says that, or the later Buddhist tradition says that the Buddha was a prince, that is, and they refer to his father as a king. But in actual fact, the second state was not a monarchy but a republic, a kind of aristocratic republic, not a purely democratic republic, which would have been administered probably by a council of distinguished elders coming from the more elite families. And there were other states also, the tribal republics, the Kolians, the um, the Lichavis, centered at Vesali and so forth. And the other form of state a form of political organization that was emerging was the monarchy. And what was happening was that the monarchies were extending their Mm. range and swallowing up the older tribal republics and integrating them into their own borders. And so making them subservient, either vassal states or just completely absorbing them into their own, their own territory. Which involved violent conquest in some cases, I assume. It did, and then the monarchies would run up against each other. And so there was, we read in the Buddhist texts about wars taking place between the two states in which, the two monarchies in which the Buddha spent most of his time, the state of Magadha, which was further to the south, and the state of Kosala, which was further to the northwest. 
Mm-hmm. And as long as we're talking about kind of state politics, there's also a period later uh, in 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 Indian history when uh, during the time of Ashoka, of course, the, yeah. the famous emperor. And, and and one reason this is noteworthy is because. I gather that the Buddhist sayings that Ashoka had placed around the kingdom are the earliest uh, physically preserved uh, manifestations of Buddhist scripture, as I understand it, right? Because they were in they were in stone. They they were, yeah. Yeah. and and he uh, had reason to emphasize um, the the Pacific, the, the more the more. You know, uh, uh, well, the theme of peace and non-aggression. Yeah. Uh, the standard story about him—I don't know how much we actually know—is that he there had been a time when he himself was engaged in conquest. He came yeah. to regret it yeah. and renounce it. And in any event, once he had a, a large empire that he wanted wanted to remain peaceful, uh, he, he certainly uh, started emphasizing that part of the Buddhist scriptures, right? Yeah, according to the account that is I believe this account is recorded in one of the inscriptions that he had conquered a a state which was called Kalinga Mm -hmm. which now it corresponds to part of Andhra Pradesh and the state of Orissa that region, this is in the east, the northeast of India and he, after the conquest, he visited that state and looked at the battlefield and he saw thousands of dead soldiers lying on the ground and the animals that were killed in the course of the battle. And this awakened or pricked his conscience and awakened a deep sense of remorse. And then sort of trying to find a philosophy of life that would give him some consolation and guidance Eventually, he turned to Buddhism. In mm-hmm. fact, I think he might have been nominally a Buddhist before this incident, but it was the direct sort of exposure to the violence of war that generated this intense attraction to the Dhamma and this concern to promote the Dhamma. And he did it, in a, according to the inscriptions, in a very skillful way. He didn't try to impose Buddhism as a formal religion upon his realm because he knew that there were people following many different creeds and spiritual Mm -hmm. practices within the territory over which he was reigning. So instead he used what would be the the word, which is the binding concept of all the different Indian religions, he used this as a means to promote, to create and promote harmony amongst all of the different groups within his empire. And that is the concept of Dharma, which is an idea that's common to the different Indian religions, whether it's Jainism, whether Brahmanism or Buddhism. And so there are certain ideas which are fundamental to Indian Dharma, which would have been shared in common by the different religions. And so he didn't emphasize, when in most of his edicts and inscriptions, he didn't emphasize the ideas that are specific in particular to Buddhism, but the themes that are fundamental to the shared dharma of the different Indian religions, such as looking after one's parents, maintaining and supporting religious 
um, renunciance, practicing generosity, mm-hmm. living a life of harmlessness, being faithful to one's spouse, bringing up one's children properly, showing compassion to others and to animals, uh, and so forth. So these are ideas that basically followers of any of the Indian spiritual traditions okay. could have affirmed. So in this context, you're, you're pronouncing as Dharma, the word that you earlier pronounced as Dhamma in an, in an exclusively um, Buddhist context, right? I mean, they're the same. I mean, that's a word that has a number of different meanings, but broadly speaking, it refers to teachings. And in this case, uh, you're talking about teachings common to Buddhist and other traditions when, right, when you yeah. call it Dharma. Yeah, yeah. Okay. The um, So... The, the emphasis on nonviolence in Buddhism, to what extent is there a logical, a kind of a logical argument for it spelled out in the, in the texts? I say that what comes, cl- maybe there are two grounds on which the Buddhist texts roots the principle of nonviolence, sort of two rationales given for Adhering and adhering (coughs) strictly to a life of nonviolence. One of these, I would say, is derives the principle of harmlessness or nonviolence from a kind of moral reasoning which doesn't require reference to any supporting tenet of beliefs or system of beliefs that transcend ordinary perception. And this is basically the same argument used in the Golden Rule. So we find this argument used in a sutta, it's in the Sangyutta Nikaya. I believe it's chapter 55. It could be sutta number 7 or sutta number 10. It's called the People of Bamboo Gate. It was a town that the Buddha visited. And here, the argument the Buddha uses when speaking to these people of this particular town, they come to him and they say, please, Venerable, we are householders, we can't live the kind of lifestyle that you are following, the life of complete renunciation. We have our wives, our children, our occupations. So teach us a dharma relevant to ourselves. And then the Buddha begins by teaching them that you know for yourself that if Anybody, somebody else were to harm you, to cause injury to you, to take your life, that would be unpleasant, disagreeable to you. So in the same way, you could should consider that all other people have the same thoughts, the same feelings, mm-hmm. that they want to preserve their lives. And so if you were to do anything to injure them or to threaten their life, that would be disagreeable to them. So by putting yourself in their place, you should not kill or cause harm or injury. Okay, so that is what we call a pure moral reasoning without any kind of, you might call a metaphysical background. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the second line of reasoning is based on the principle of karma. And so this requires a willingness to accept the idea that our volitional actions actions that originate from our intentions create within us a potential 
for those actions to bounce back upon us and to bring to us results that correspond to the ethical nature of those actions. Now, now, does that mean that, you know, in the real world, yeah. uh, I mean, leave aside implications for rebirth and so on, hmm. that um, in, in the course of my life, if I harm other people physically, then physical harm will come back to, to me? What I would say is that if you harm other people, this creates a karma, a karmic disposition for harm to come back to you. It doesn't necessarily mean that the harm is actually going to come back to you or that it will come back to you in exactly the same way. But the way the image that's sometimes used in the text is that of planting a seed, depositing a Mm -hmm. seed. So when we have seeds, it's not necessarily the case that those seeds are going to germinate and bring forth their plants and the flowers and so forth, or their their crops. But the seed has that potential. And so when we harm others, kill them, injure them, that creates the karma of harming, injuring, and taking life. And that karma sort of remains within the stream of the mind, the stream of consciousness as a potentiality. And it has that potential, if it becomes strong enough, it could govern the rebirth process and bring about an undesirable type of rebirth. Mm -hmm. Even if it doesn't actually generate the rebirth, but in the course of a life, a future life, or even this life, it can come to fruition and bring some kind of physical harm to us, a harm that will in some way correspond to the harm that we have imposed on other people. Okay. Or on other beings, yeah. The reason I ask is because, um, I mean, on the one hand, karma seems to be a kind of, I guess you could call it a metaphysical accounting system uh, out there, um, which uh, could influence um, the nature of your rebirth in principle. Yeah. uh, And, and, uh, I guess in some cases, whether there's rebirth, but, but we can assume that a relatively small number of people uh, escape rebirth altogether in the average uh, generation of people another because the only way to escape it is uh true enlightenment uh but but the um but then but then you also uh, and so that's kind of a metaphysical idea but then there's also and I think you do see this in the Buddhist text sometimes an observation about the way the world works mm-hmm. which is that violence begets violence yeah yeah so, and yeah. so these are these are somewhat separate propositions, I gather you'd say, and both of them are reflected in the texts? Yeah, I say that, that's definitely a very important point, a very good point, that from the, the, the Buddha's point of view, that it's not only that violence and the harm of others will create the karma, which will bounce back and return to us in the form of the ripening of that karma, either later in this life or in some future life, but it's the nature of inflicting violence upon other people, or this takes place also at the international level when the state inflicts violence upon another state. It breeds resentment in those who have been subjected to that violence Mm -hmm. and a desire for revenge. And thus the violence that we inflict on others um, will lay the foundation for the violence returning to us 
when others get the opportunity to take their revenge upon us. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and because I, we can actually see that principle oper- operating through the course of human history, you know, one sure. state right up to the present. Yeah. And it's as I recall, it's pretty explicit. There are passages that say, Hatred begets hatred, and only through non-hatred does hatred cease. It's yeah, something exactly, yeah. that explicit, right? Yeah, exactly, yeah. Now, so so I guess that that is what, uh, that's among the things, I mean, all of this could lead one to believe that the only defensible stance for a Buddhist would be uh, pacifism, and that there would be no such thing as just war, according mm. to Buddhism. But as a practical matter... um, I gather a number of Buddhist thinkers have held otherwise, which isn't to say they're all right or you would defend them all or anything. But but mm. there is that tension in the real in the real world, right? Yeah, I don't think in any way you, one could justify on Buddhist principles, even by stretching them to a great extent, the idea of a just offensive war or war mm. of aggression. There's an arguable case can be made and has been made and has actually been practiced throughout Buddha's history, that engaging in in warfare defensively is justifiable. Mm -hmm. Virtually all the Buddhist countries of South, Southeast Asia, have engaged in those kinds of wars. You know, like, for example, Sri Lanka, through its history, has been subjected to invasions from South India. And so this this single... Singly, state has defended itself from those invasions by having you know very powerful armies. In fact, if you look at the names of the Singhalese kings, many of those names have military connotations. Vijaya Bahu, the arm of victory; Parakrama Bahu, the arm of vigor or strength, and so on. <laughs> and you know, when I first encountered Buddhism, when I was a graduate student, oh, I had this idealistic image of all the Buddhist countries of Asia living in perfect harmony with each other, sort of in a, a perfect utopia. But then I started to read like the history of Burma and Thailand and Cambodia. I found that perpetually through the centuries, Burma and Thailand were forever at war with each other. Then on the other side of Thailand, the Thais were in perpetual war with the Cambodians. The Cambodians were in war with the Vietnamese. (laughs) And to the north, the Vietnamese had to perpetually defend themselves from incursions from South China. (laughs) And so the history of South Asia, Southeast Asia, is not a very peaceful history. Right, and and yet, um, and yet they're virtually all Buddhists. Mm-hmm. And we should say, just as a footnote, Southeast Asia is where you find. I re, I alluded earlier to Theravadan Buddhism, one of the two main yeah. branches of Buddhism, and 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 that tends to be in Southeast Asia, um, whereas uh, Mahayana Buddhism uh, is, yeah. is is tends to be concentrated elsewhere. Um, but uh, so. I, get, I assume that in these cases, when Buddhist countries went to war, in, in, in some cases, uh, Buddhist thinkers articulated an ethical defense of the war. Now, uh, and, 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 it, and it probably generally assumed uh, somewhat the form you just outlined, which is to say 
there is a such a thing as a defensive war. But that's not explicit in the early Buddhist texts, right? It's, no. The, in the early, and, 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 and what the Buddha said, there's not even like that loophole, right? No, one doesn't find any kind of opening like that, even for a defensive war. So if a follower of Buddhism wants to uphold very, very strictly and unflinchingly to the principles of the of the Dharma of the teaching laid down within the, the canonical texts, then it would seem that they would be committed to a principle of absolute non-harming, and in relations with other people, um, if they're attacked by others, they would just have to, if they cannot defuse the tension through discussion and argumentation they would just have to passively submit to the violence uh, inflicted upon them. And mm-hmm. at, a, at a national level, it would seem that an ideal Buddha state, strictly upholding the principles of the ethics laid down in the canon, would be committed to a, pa- a policy of pacifism. But the Buddhist countries, to my knowledge, have never followed a pacifistic policy. Mm-hmm. And what sorts of of kind of official rationales do you tend to get i mean do they just say look it's self-evident you know you have to defend yourself or is there and i want to i want to eventually get around to something you have uh, i know articulated in distinguishing between uh kind of liberation in this life and a longer term karmic perspective as a as one way to look at at how uh, defensive war might be justified, but before we get to to that view, hmm. it, is there is there is there a famous kind of officially accepted argument in in you know uh, Buddhist texts that have accumulated since the the Buddha himself lived, or even in modern yeah, times on yeah, the part I, of I, Buddhist I, would say that I know more from modern times yeah. than, than from any kind of That's Buddhist text that would have been yeah. <clears throat> Somehow I'm a bit doubtful, let's say, monks, Buddhist monks, who are usually the authors of those texts, would have provided in writing arguments in favor of even defensive war. Hmm. But the way I've accounted it in Sri Lanka during the period of the conflict with the Tamil Tigers was that it's, necessar- that it's the responsibility of the state to protect the people. And so that this is a duty that the government, the members of the government take upon themselves when they agree to accept that office. And so if the country, in the case of the internal ethnic conflict, if the country is disturbed by uprisings of militant groups that want to split the country and to, you know, to divide the country and for that group to take over part of the country for its own, their own ethnic group, then it's the responsibility of the government to protect the people and to preserve the territorial integrity of the country by crushing, by defeating the rebel groups. Mm -hmm. And I assume the same kind of argument would have been used back in the 12th, 11th, 12th, 13th centuries when Sri Lanka was subjected to foreign invasions coming from South India, the arguments in favor of using, taking military action to to repel the invaders and to, again, to protect 
the country and its people. Mm-hmm. And there's a famous, there's a famous and rather disturbing incident that's narrated in a work in the Sri Lankan Chronicle called the Mahavangsa. And we don't know whether there's this incident that's narrated is a true historical incident or whether it is a fiction created by, composed by the author of the Mahavangsa. But this took place during the reign of King Dutu Gamani. Dutu Gamani. Dutu Gamanu. He was the king, I think in the third, third, I think the second century BC or maybe the first century BC who repelled the Tamil invasion of, of Sri Lanka. Hmm. <clears throat> and he, as the king, he presided over military campaigns which brought about the death of thousands of South Indian invaders. And somewhat like Ashoka, when he saw so many people killed as a result of his um, military commands, he was stricken by remorse and his conscience was deeply disturbed. And then some monks who are said to have been arhats heard about his remorse and came to an arhat means you're truly enlightened. Yeah, you have, yeah, yeah. yeah, truly enlightened, truly liberated beings. So they heard about his remorse, and so they came to him to console him. And they told him, Oh, great king, you don't have to be stricken by sorrow, since of all of those people who are killed, I think only two of two and a half of them could be considered actual human beings. Mm. That is because only t- two had taken the three refuges, and of the two of them were Buddhist, and one of them had taken the five precepts. The others were all non-Buddhist, and so there was no real damage or destruction of human life in killing them. But I have to say that that is, a, <clears throat> I think it's a fifth century or, or, late <clears throat> or later chronicle of Sri Lankan history, and okay. it's not in any way a canonical or even a commentarial Buddhist. Buddhist text. But in, in any event, that would, uh, this is a good segue to this perspective you outlined that I alluded to. Um, because in your view, I gather, you know, if one were to construct a Buddhist ethical defense of supporting defensive wars, in your view, uh, you couldn't support those defensive wars and attain liberation in your lifetime, in this cycle of, of life. Is that is that fair to say? Because so these are arhats who, who supposedly had attained liberation, true enlightenment, and they were defending uh, a war. And I gather in your view, if 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 you wanted to attain, uh, and you can correct me as soon as I finish <laughs> making clear what I mean, but but it, but but as I I read this uh, thing you wrote for the Inquiring Mind some time ago, the idea would be that in your view, if you were to uh, have a chance of attaining uh, liberation in this <laughs> lifetime, in other words, not being reborn, that would involve a, a, a more thoroughgoing renunciation of oh, yeah, violence. Definitely. That would definitely be the case. Okay. Yeah, it's not necessarily the case, the way you phrased it earlier, <clears throat> that somebody might participate in warfare, and then at a later time, he might make the determination to pursue liberation in that life itself. 
It doesn't mean that the fact that he participated in war, maybe the fact that he even killed people in that life, that that would necessarily be an obstruction to the attainment of liberation. It okay. could be that the strength of his determination, the diligence of his practice, might be sufficient to sort of cancel out the negative karma. I see. But, but what I would say is that if somebody is fully determined to gain enlightenment and liberation in that life, then that person would not participate in war, but would have to take the stance of a conscientious objector okay. and reject the call to military service. And, and so in this view, one could not do what these arahats are alleged to have done, which is to actually have attained enlightenment yeah. and still be defending any kind of violence. Yeah, it seems that the description of the status of arahat to those advisors of the king, this is, again, it's the yeah. creative imagination of the author of the Mahavansha sure. and something that really could not be well supported by appeal to actual Buddhist canonical texts. Okay. So then on the uh then 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 elaborate a little on on what the kind of Buddhist ethical foundation would be for if you're not planning to attain enlightenment in this uh in, in this life or liberation in this life which is to say nirvana ultimately um what then would be the 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 remaining justification Mm. for advocating defensive war that's consistent with Buddhist uh, ethics. I mean, just elaborate on on that. Yeah. Okay, on- I, I developed that argument, and when I developed that argument, I wasn't so much thinking about what kind of advice to give to Buddhists who are confronted with this, such a dilemma, mm-hmm. but rather with the question of what kind of moral assessment I myself as a Buddhist or other Buddhists might make of those who engage in a defensive war to protect the population from a brutal military campaign being launched against them by a very hostile, aggressive, and cruel enemy. And this so often happens in the case of these types of arguments. The particular instance that I brought up is the example is the case of the Nazi invasion of other European countries, mm-hmm. and maybe particularly Great Britain. Say, if I'm looking, I'm living in 1939, 1940, how would I assess ethically the decision of the British to defend themselves by military action against the Nazi blitzkrieg and military campaigns rather than to adopt a policy of pacifism and just submit to the Nazis. Mm -hmm. And so my argument would be that the Nazis, when Nazi Germany at that time was engaged in a very cruel, brutal program of military conquest, which would be followed by the obliteration of thousands and maybe even hundreds and thousands of people in the subjugated population. And so if we esteem and value human life, then we cannot just sort of sit back passively and say that the country itself and its population should submit to the Nazi aggression. Maybe if I'm a conscientious Buddhist living in 
in Great Britain at that time, I would say that as a Buddhist of conscience, I won't join the military. In fact, there were Buddhists living in Britain at that time who adopted the principle of conscientious objection, uh, the, the status of conscientious objectors, but they served in other capacities. They mm. still participated in the war effort, but not as frontline soldiers. Mm-hmm. They would serve, for example, as um, in infirmaries, in, you know, in hospitals, in military hospitals, or mm-hmm. maybe as cooks, but not as actual soldiers, from, as combatant soldiers. And there were, there were probably, I'm sure there were Quakers who were, who were conscientious objectors too. I, I didn't know whether they served in those same capacities or not. Yeah, that I um, don't know. Yeah. Um, the, uh, and of course the, I mean, the reason, as you said, that the canonical example is Nazi Germany is because it's such a clear cut case yeah, yeah, of, yeah. of evil. And, and, you know, people who worry about any justification for defensive war, point out that even in much less clear-cut examples, people are pretty good at convincing themselves that there's a defensive rationale. I mean, for example, we mentioned the book Zen at War, which is about uh, the support uh, of the Japanese war effort on the part of, you know, kind of the Buddhist establishment, I guess. And uh, and I don't know exactly what kind of... Um, rationale there was but i suspect that some people pointed out that actually america uh before pearl harbor had been subjecting to J- japan to some pretty harsh economic sanctions i mean that, that which probably to them felt like something approaching economic strangulation i think it was an oil embargo and so on um and, and in any event I, or to take a contemporary example um you know drone strikes uh any president who, who is responsible for drone strikes, which would mean any recent president, uh, Trump, Obama, Bush before him, uh, for that matter, Clinton, will tell you, uh, I'm sure, well, we have to do this to keep our population safe, even if sometimes the connection uh, between the, the drone strike and, and actual mm-hmm. defense mm-hmm. is non-obvious. But anyway, I'm sure, you, you know, you've heard this, this objection and considered it right it is a it is a it is this kind of a it can be kind of a slippery slope right yeah that's i mean that's the old slippery slope argument yeah and i don't have any kind of irrefutable rejoinder to that um it, just i would say that from the standpoint of moral assessment one has to become be, try to be as clear as possible about what are the different pro and anti-factors to be taken in consideration mm-hmm. and to be as honest as possible, suspending to the greatest extent as possible one's own biases and preferences in favor of a maybe a detached uh, moral assessment mm-hmm. of the appropriate line of action. And in I think princip- even the U, I think even the UN, is it the founding UN document, the UN Charter? Mm-hmm in his statement about the resort to military action, holds that all conflicts should be solved between nations, should be solved by negotiation, by by consultation, by negotiations, and so Mm -hmm. forth. But then, at the very end of the statement, leaves the door open and says that there are cases where 
all attempts at negotiation and peaceful settlement fell, and only in that case is the resort to military action considered acceptable. Yeah. And so it doesn't completely close the door to military action. No, well, self-defense is certainly considered a valid valid grounds by the UN Charter, is considered valid grounds for uh, military action. And, and I think it's the sole kind of explicit justification, according to the UN yeah. Charter. Yeah. And there's a whole mechanism for determining when it's uh, yeah. valid involving yeah. the, the Security Council and so on. Yeah. Um, the uh, – in principle uh, – now, now, I should say, you know, Americans and other Westerners sometimes – have an exaggerated conception of the role that meditation plays in kind of everyday Buddhism in Asia. Yeah. Uh, there are many Buddhists, even Buddhist monks in Asia, who don't meditate. Mo- most Buddhists in Asia don't meditate. Uh, yeah, I mean, I've lived in Asia for 24 years, so I know what, <laughs> at least I know what the scene is like in Sri Lanka, and I have a you know, quite a good idea of what the meditation scene would be like in Thailand, Myanmar, yeah. and other Buddhist countries. Well, and in fact, um, yeah, now they're, they're, uh, I guess it's in, uh, Myanmar that a tradition of lay meditation did start to develop under colonial rule like a hundred years ago or something, yeah. right? Yeah. And, and that actually may have played some role in the extent to which meditation is associated with Buddhism in America. I don't know. Uh, but, but, uh, so there are exceptions, but by and large, uh, the, the the actual practice of Buddhism on the part of Asian Buddhists is, I think, closer to the religious practice of American Christians than Americans may realize. That is to say, there are, there's regular observance, there are rituals, there are prayers, and, and so on, yeah. and there yeah. there's not necessarily meditation. Now, with that as a, a prelude, it is... Uh, at the same time, uh, meditation is, is a, a, a discipline that's espoused in the earliest... Text and there's a, a, a well, uh, you know, uh, over there, there's a well worked out uh, uh, justification for it, and its merits are much discussed in early Buddhist texts. And, and I would think that in principle, uh, something like mindfulness meditation, although of course meditation itself has evolved, and, and what is taught today as meditation may not have been exactly uh, what was taught in the early days, but in principle, couldn't meditation help you put your get get your mind in a place where you are better at actually assessing the situation objectively uh, and not so, you might say, tribalistically in determining whether uh, your, your, you know, your, your people's defense is really at stake? In theory, I would certainly say that that is the case. But as you pointed out, you know, the great overwhelming majority of Buddhists in Asia mm-hmm don't meditate and it's taken that meditation is a practice pretty much that falls within the domain of the monastic of the monk Mm -hmm. rather than a practice for lay people. And in the monasteries too, the dominant belief is that apart from short periods of a primarily ritualistic type of meditation, but serious, earnest, dedicated meditation is a practice for those who are sort of what, who have already have accumulated a large stock of meritorious or wholesome karma and have already reached certain level of spiritual advancement 
And until we reach that stage, we have to dedicate ourselves to devotional practices, observing the rules of discipline, learning the teachings, learning the Buddha's teachings, and preaching the Buddha's teachings. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but when you learn the Buddha's teachings, you see what he's saying again and again to the monks is meditate monks, don't be negligent, don't put it off till later. <laughs> and so you learn the Buddha saying this over and over, and then when you have to preach what the Buddha said, you preach to others, the Buddha says, don't be negligent, don't be heedless, meditate diligently, don't put it off till later. But you're putting it off till later. (laughs) The audience is putting it off till later. But what also strikes me, and this is a bit puzzling, I don't know how to explain it. I've encountered people who I've seen can be very diligent, rigorous, intensive meditators, but when they come into situations that rub up against what we might call their inbuilt, inbuilt, maybe ethnic, racial, and nationalistic allegiances, their whatever mental stability and equanimity they've built up through their meditation practice falls to the wayside and those ethnic, racial, nationalistic, or religious allegiances come to the forefront. And maybe they won't issue in violent behavior, but they can still trigger quite inflammatory states of mind and inflammatory Mm -hmm. speech. Yeah. It's a challenge to be uh, a good person and <laughs> to maintain uh, mm-hmm. equanimity. Uh, you, you know, it's funny. Uh, uh, you, I'm, you may have had the same experience a number of us have had, which is that, like at a meditation retreat, if you're really, really, you know, f- that focused on meditation and doing that much meditation each day and getting getting no news from the outside world, you can feel as if you've entered into another uh, state where you are. Uh, much more kind of detached in your assessment of things and so on. But even so, that can be disturbed pretty readily. I, I mean, mm-hmm. it, it's good to see kind of what it's like to be, to have a sense for, for how, for, in other words, for how different uh, your frame of mind can be from your everyday more volatile frame of mind. Mm-hmm. At the same time, it's hard to keep it in non-volatile volatile condition, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Um, so... Do you now you're associated with with political activism uh, to some extent? I don't mean you you do a ton of it every day, but you've written in support of it, and you, I think you've even written that there's not as much Buddhist political activism as, as you'd like to see. Do you agree with my assessment that one area where there's particularly little yeah, Buddhist yeah, activism yeah. in America is is yeah. when it comes to American foreign policy and the American use of force abroad? Yeah, but first let me just go back about the political activism. Okay. You know, as a as a Buddhist monk, you know, I'm a monk, so I don't want to support one political party as against another political party or mm-hmm. to support this candidate as against that candidate. And I don't go about campaigning for particular candidates and parties as against other candidates and parties. But the way I look at 
politics today, I see that politics is a sort of, I say that it's a field in which great moral battles are being fought. So I look at politics not as the struggle for power by this faction against that faction, but it's the area where which will determine whether certain human rights will be granted, whether people will get the medical care that they need, the food that they require, the access to the types of education that they need, the social services that they need, whether Mm -hmm. we will adopt policies that will protect the climate, protect the natural environment, maintain a stable climate, or whether we will allow the forces of industry and the corporations to ravish the, the earth in order to take the resources that they need to maintain their corporate uh, profits. So all of this really depends on political on policies and enacted by politicians, and thus it depends on the political choices that we make. Mm-hmm. Okay, now coming to your question about foreign policy, mm-hmm. whether that's an area that tends to be neglected mm-hmm. by both. Yeah. yeah, maybe. I mean, I think foreign policy is a very major area of concern for one, well, for several reasons. One is that U.S. foreign policy determines the fate of you know, millions of people around the world. What our policies are will determine whether thousands and thousands of people, whether they will live or die. Um, and they'll also determine the fate of the people in this country who volunteer to enter upon the armed services. Um, also, it will just make determine govern decisions about how our own monetary resources are to be allocated. Like right now, the United States allocates something like. I think it's 53% of the uh, discretionary budget to the military services. Um, But maybe the reason why Buddhists are not so actively involved in taking stands on issues of foreign policy is because, you know, we have limited time, limited resources, and so we tend to throw our support behind um, issues that in which we feel that we can make a more hmm. decisive, to have a more decisive impact. Hmm. Whereas foreign policy, well, it's determined by you know, such powerful factions, which are just almost hidden out of you, and almost pursue this, the same track, no matter which government comes into power, whether it's Democrats or Republicans, there might be some differences, but yeah. there is that what they call that deep state there with its yeah. own. Well, I I, I was going to say you, you you don't have to abandon your nonpartisan position in order to fight American yeah. militarism because to yeah. some extent it 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 seems to be a, a property of uh, both Democratic and Republican administrations. Hmm. Um, yeah, I, I guess I would say by the same token, you're right that foreign policy is an area where relatively small factions have a lot of influence and some of it comes through behind the scenes lobbying and it's decisive 
but by the same token, I mean, you could argue the, the average American whose tax dollars are going, especially now that the violence is invisible. I mean, we don't even pay attention to these drone strikes I have anymore. To say, I have to say, this is also probably another major reason. You know, when I was in graduate school, middle or late 1960s, we were always seeing, this was the period when the Vietnam, the war in Vietnam was going on. We were mm-hmm. always seeing reports about the war. Mm-hmm. And every, I think every day there were, or at least once a week, there would be images of the soldiers who were killed in the war. And there would be video presentations of the body bags coming back. Mm-hmm. The, the, um, the, the coffins yeah. coming back. We don't see this in the news report these days. Foreign news about foreign events, almost especially about war, the U, the U.S. wars, mm-hmm. is pretty much hidden from the mainstream media. To find out about them, one has to look deeply. Yeah. The alternative media, like the Intercept, mm-hmm. um, the Truth Out, Truth Dig. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, uh, drone strikes don't involve U.S. casualties, so you're yeah, not yeah. going to see any any body bags. Uh, and there's no draft anymore. Like the reason yeah, right. why why we were so concerned about the war in Vietnam and other countries of Southeast Asia, we were vulnerable to the draft. And if we right. got drafted, we would not be out, out there fighting a war that we didn't believe in, but that right. we're we're forced to fight. Right now, we have a professional military and. The rest of us can go about our daily activities. And yeah. I mean, at the same time, if you do accept the diagnosis found in early Buddhist texts, which, according to which violence does perpetuate itself, you know, there is an argument for, for, uh, for trying to curtail the American deployment of violence. Mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, I mean, there is the case that these drone strikes just perpetuate the anti-American hatred that generates the terrorism that, 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 and, and on and on. Mm-hmm. But um, let me let me just ask you: Are there um, are there particular uh, areas of uh, of American foreign policy that you have that you find objectionable yourself um, more than others, or? You know, I'm still concerned about the U.S. military involvement in countries around the world, which Mm -hmm. we don't hear so much about, again, in the mainstream media. Um, But the U.S. has troops, even in various countries in Africa. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't even know what the status of the U.S. military involvement in Iraq is like anymore. There, there are still troops there. there. There are American troops in an amazing number of countries. Now, in, in many cases, they're not involved in violence. They're just these bases. Yeah. Yeah. But the number of countries we have troops in is, yeah. I forget the number, but it's astounding. Um, yeah. but the, I'm somewhat, uh, yeah, somewhat worried about the latest trend in the, in the decrees coming out of the White House, turning China into the world's... Uh, boogeyman Mm -hmm. and so trying to stir up all the antagonism of the american people against china making putting china in the role in which the old soviet union used to occupy yep 
and then the role that well, well, perhaps Iran is still considered as part as an enemy. Yeah, China seems to be the new Iran, at yeah. least in the sense that more of the administration's energy is devoted to demonizing it now. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's I, I think we're maybe in a, at a point of really kind of epic change in the sense that we, you know, we're kind of at a crossroads. Like we may be moving toward a fundamentally different kind of relationship with China. And given that the U.S. and China will probably for many decades to come be the two most powerful countries in the world, yeah, yeah. Um, that could have real consequences for our ability to just address a number of uh, kind of global mm. problems. I don't know. Mm. Um, you know, and and you do... You know, well, I guess we don't need to get into that too deeply, but I, I, I share your concern. Mm-hmm. Um, let me ask you just kind of in closing, um, I have not so far alluded to the particular circumstances uh, of the last few weeks and months, but of course there's been a pandemic, and then mm-hmm. as we uh, tape this, there have been uh, a couple of weeks of, of uh, social unrest in the United States, Following on the heels of uh, the killing, of course, the now infamous killing of George Floyd, yeah. um, do you are, do you get? Uh, I don't know if you've been out and about much. Of course, amid the pandemic, uh, most of us aren't out and about much. But do you get asked about any of this, or have anything to say uh, as a monk about uh, the the turbulent times we're living in? Well, we've been on lockout here at the Twangyan Mud. Lockdown here at Twangyan Monastery since the middle of March. Uh-huh. So I haven't gone out of the monastery, but I've been watching pretty much everything that's going on through the internet. Mm-hmm. And of course, the ki- the killing, the, the murder of George Floyd was horrific. But we have to remember that it's just like the latest in a whole string of killings of black people by the uh, by the police that's been going on that has come to prominence through the media for the last 10 or 12 years. And I find it in a way, even though it's horrific and revolting, but what's very encouraging is that it's bringing people of all ethnicities, races, backgrounds, even other countries out into the streets, demanding far-reaching changes in U.S. social and economic, well, and changes in U.S. policing policies. But what I would say in my own reflections is that the violent behavior of the police towards black people and other communities of color is only maybe the tip of the iceberg of the way in which privileged white people hold poorer people of color, whether black, Latino, Native American or other types of immigrants from other countries, hold them in subordinate positions, try to deny them basic social services, impose disabling, crippling poverty upon them. So it would not be enough merely to transform the policing policies, but that should be the starting point for far-reaching changes in economic and social policies. That this, that regard people of all colors, ethnicities, and backgrounds as 
dignified human beings entitled to all of the support they need to live meaningful and fulfilling lives. Okay, well, that's a, a good a good note to conclude on. Um, and and I think in in that uh, in that connection, maybe the, the the work of yours to mention in closing is one of the two that I mentioned at the beginning. This that's the Buddhist teachings on social and communal harmony. Yeah. Uh, again, these are these are uh, a selection of your translation of, of uh, yeah. early Buddhist texts from from the from the discourses. Uh, and and uh, I think it is very relevant to the question of what our obligations are to our fellow citizens and and yeah, yeah. and how we can uh, do things that that benefit them. Yeah, can I also make sort of just follow up on this a little bit? Sure, sure. Yeah, like you asked about my view on foreign policy. Okay, but another issue that I'm concerned about that involves our relations with other nations, not so much official U.S. governmental policy, and that is the problem of chronic hunger and malnutrition around the world. And to deal with this, together with some of my students years ago, uh, in 2008, we created an organization called Buddhist Global Relief, Mm. which provides assistance to poor communities around the world affected with chronic hunger and malnutrition in various ways, through, in some cases, through direct food aid, but also through education, through promoting the education of poor children, especially girls, and also by giving women the opportunity to start right livelihood projects to support their families. And so we started in 2008 with just three projects and a budget of about, I think, $20,000. Now, annually, we have 40 projects going on in countries ranging from Vietnam Cambodia, Mongolia, India, Sri Lanka, several African countries, Haiti, Peru, Nicaragua, as well as the United States. And so maybe the viewers of this broadcast can look up this organization. The website is Buddhist Global Relief. Okay, and they can participate in various ways? Yeah, they they could. Of course, we always appreciate donations to support our work. But also we hold fundraising events throughout at certain key points in the year, particularly a walk to feed the hungry, usually in the fall. Okay. So it's Buddhist Global Relief. Uh, You can Google that. Uh, And then I, uh, whenever I talk to you, I kind of ritually recommend uh, your lectures on Buddhism for anybody who wants a good uh, kind of introduction to Buddhism. And what what is, uh, if they can Google that too, and, 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 uh, you know, you should put those in podcast form so that they would just be downloadable via a podcast app. But they, there are MP3s out there, right, that people can download and put on a smartphone, even if not. I don't think they can easily do it through the regular podcast app. But but what are what's the phrase they need to Google? It's your name and what it, what are the uh, the what's the name of those lectures? Do you remember I, when they were first published on cassette tapes back right. in? 1981 or 82, when I was staying in Washington, D.C., at the Sri Lankan Temple in Washington, D.C., mm-hmm. that time they were issued in a set called The Buddha's Teaching As It Is. That's right. But I think that title has been, has, is no longer used for the 10 lectures, which are floating independently. 
But maybe if people search for 10 lectures on Buddhism by Bhikkhu Bodhi, they'll be able okay. to find them. Okay. I know that they're available on YouTube without a video oh. component. Oh, good. Okay. You, you just get a photo of me and then the lecture. Okay. Okay. Sounds good. But I do, I do recommend them. They're, they're, uh, pretty comprehensive and, um, uh, and authoritative. So, uh, so thanks for taking the time. Well, thank you for having me. I'll let you, uh, get back to being monastic. Okay. All right. Thanks.